In this episode, I'm joined once again by Christina Camiso, who is a professor of philosophy for Open University. In this episode, we talk about her book, Alon Metzger, Historian and Historiographer of the Sciences. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Emetics and gain access to some exclusive content and keep the podcast running indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Christina Camiso, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are going to be discussing the work of Alain Metzger, uh, primarily from your, your text, your monograph, Alain Metzger, Historian and Historiographer of the Sciences, which was published in 2019 by Rootledge. Now, um, I say we primarily are going, you know, I'll, I'll primarily be using your text as um the the sort of primary influence for this discussion um unfortunately i don't read uh, any other language than english i'm your stereotypical western philosopher i'm very ignorant in that sense and i'm not very good at uh, understanding other languages unfortunately so specifically with metzger maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong there isn't many other uh, english texts covering her work uh, in terms of uh, monograph, no. This is the actually mine is the first monograph in any language on Metzger. Oh wow! So that's uh, that's a first. So if you want to read the whole book at the moment, you have to read mine. I'm afraid. Um, in English, there are articles um, on her. Um, there is, for example, also a collection of. Uh, articles on her uh, created by uh, Gad Freudenthal. Gad Freudenthal has done much uh, to uh, make her work more, you know, available to people. So there is a, a um, I think was entitled Studies uh, on Etudes sur Hélène Metzger, because uh, somewhere in French and somewhere in English. Uh, so that authors have published, uh, like I don't know, John Christie and um, uh, others, um, on her. But yeah, there isn't an enormous amount. She has also been little translated, a bit, but not so much. And I hope that my work and this podcast will encourage people to translate more of, you know, the primary sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, there is not much. There is. The first translated actually is the least, I don't say the least uh, important, it's important, but it's a popular history of chemistry she wrote. And that was translated early on. Uh, and then in terms of papers that she wrote, so the ones that maybe are more interested for philosophers, at the moment, sorry, that I don't want this to sound as self-promotion, but uh, in English you can find four as an appendix of my book. <laughs> And then there is a fifth on the, her work on the concept of precursor or forerunner that she criticizes, uh, has been translated and commented on. There's a commentary by Nick Chardin and myself, I'm afraid. And uh, it just published now on Hopos, is just now, mm-hmm. uh, I think two days ago. Oh, so, wow. uh, yes, actually, it's, um, online height of print. It's not still in print. So that's quite new. And, uh, but uh, otherwise, yes, uh, I think translations are a bit uh, difficult to find. 
I think I know of one of uh, work on Newton, but I couldn't put my hands on on it. So I'm not quite sure what to say about that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did uh, it come about that you were to write the, the, the first and so far only text uh, covering Metzger? Well, I think when I read her, and the first time I read her was very long ago, maybe 20 years ago, something like that. And um, I thought her historiography especially, so the a reflection on how to write history, how history develops, uh, what our, what's our relationship with the past? Can we really understand past texts? How do we understand it? Um, understand them? Uh, what does it mean, for example, when people say somebody was a forerunner of present science? Uh, does history of science uh, advances? Uh, is there a progress? All these questions that you know um, the historiographers and philosophers are very uh, keen to think about. She had very original ideas. Uh, by the way, uh, of course, she was very mercenary milieu, and maybe we can talk about that a little. Um, so a lot of ideas, we have to place them historically in a way, because they answer to questions which were very hot, let's say, in Paris at the time, especially in the war period. And uh, but she was very original. She said things that basically nobody agreed at the time. Maybe we, we can agree now, but um, a lot of her concepts weren't so uh, popular. But when I read that, I think this is really good stuff. How can nobody uh, talk about So in terms of my biography, it was very strange because I started um, writing about her. Actually, I had uh, a postdoc of mine uh, a lifetime ago at at the, in the US, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was about uh, studying her. And because there is, of course, not of course, sorry, most people won't know. But at Harvard, there is an um, uh, archive where there are a lot of letters by her. Because she was, um, for many years, she was in correspondence with George Salton, who's the founder of ISIS, which is the oldest sister of science journal, still the most important one can say. And uh, so I went there, uh, thanks to the American Academy of Arts and Science to study her. At the time, I only wrote a long article, but she's always been in the background because I think she's extremely important and very overlooked. And uh, so I think it's um, it was worth it, really. So it, for me, it's almost a lifelong interest I have in her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting that you mention that we that we have to sort of we almost have to understand Metzger in the way Metzger understands um, science and and the, the philosophy of science and the history of science. Because when I was reading your reading your text, you know, one of the first things that really um, jumped out at me that I found peculiar, and I thought, well, hang on, why are we why am what what what's the interest here? Because Metzger. Um, Sort of begins with crystallography, correct? Mm -hmm. Which is something yes. something now. If you were to bring up in, in uh, many scientific circles, I, I think you'd be sort of sneered at. But as you say, it's the context of the science which is going on both within that sort of country. Back to our discussion on Bachelard, and also in the time. And uh, uh, this is um, this is extremely important, as you say, for understanding Metzger. But this is also something which Metzger develops uh, in terms of our own uh, philosophy of science. 
Yes, no, that's very interesting. No, you're absolutely right. Her first book is the genesis of the science of crystals. I mean, that's uh, translational. It doesn't uh, translation doesn't exist in English. It was a first book. I mean, biographically for her, she had a degree in crystallography, which probably was in turn connected to the family business because uh, she was born to a, a Jewish family in near Paris. I mean, they lived in Paris, uh, and the families they were merchants of diamonds and and uh, precious stones. So uh, maybe she maybe they thought she could join the family business. She never did. And uh, so she started from there, maybe also for biographical reasons. But what I would like to stress in terms of context, she then develops into a historian of chemistry, especially. Not only, but chemistry, early modern chemistry. And um, the chemistry is an important science for philosophers in France, uh, in a way that uh, has not been historically in the English-speaking world. In fact, there is an interesting, I don't remember many years ago, an interesting article by uh, Bernadette Benzot-Vensan. Uh, I agree with her, so that's why I, I, I quote her. That she thinks that the attention to chemistry actually shaped uh, partly the French philosophy of science, and that's why French philosophy of science is different from uh, Anglophone philosophy of science. I mean, of course, it's not the only reason. There are a lot of other reasons, but this is one of the reasons because no longer now, but English speaking philosophy of science developed uh, mainly um, through looking at physics. So physics was seen as the exemplar of science. That's what science should look like. Of course, chemistry is a, quite a bit a different kind of science. So that's important that she um, look at chemistry, but she wasn't alone. I mean, Bachelard also um, uh, reflects on chemistry, Maria Son does, all people in a circle. I mean, Duane, uh, partly. So that wasn't different. Actually, maybe that enabled her to connect with, with other people. Um, so sorry, I think maybe I lost track of all mm -hmm. your question. You said that, ah, yeah, you said that that was seems to be um, uh, particular. It wasn't particular at the time in a way, but uh, what I also meant about we have to locate what she does, that first of all, it would be unfair to have her answer questions that we haven't asked until recently because she died in 1944. But we also have to keep in mind that was the time where history of science was being developed as an independent discipline. It was very new. So she battled on the one hand against like very, uh, how do you say, um, in some cases, positivistic approach, but oh, very uh, um, uh, sort of rational reconstruction of history of science, very triumphalistic, as, as, as she calls it without much uh, um, concern about historical accuracy or anything of the kind, on the one hand. On the other hand, and that's more interesting, that was the milieu where historical epistemology was being developed. Historical epistemology, um, sometimes called French-style philosophy of science, is the philosophy of science that really focus on on uh, history of science. So history of science, science is, is seen in its development, not just current science now, science now, but 
they thought if you really want to understand uh, knowledge, how knowledge works and develops, you have to see science in its historical development, which also meant on the other side that historians of science, she was both a historian and a philosopher, I think, but historians of science thought of their discipline as philosophical, and she did very much so. She says, she writes. Uh, she writes about her philosophical method in history of science, but also of her philosophical aims. She thinks that if we want to understand the mind, if we want to understand how we go about um, finding, uh, finding out about things, how knowledge works, if we want to understand basically epistemology, then we need uh, good history of science. So both method and aims. So, so that's part of um, uh, her questions were, were over time. But I think she can still tell us about uh, a lot about historiography and about philosophy and other questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she has sort of a... I would say a, bit, a peculiar method of of approaching science in the sense that she she writes of quite literally visit attempting to visit the laboratories of history. Um, and what does what does she sort of mean by this? Oh, that that's 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 good to to talk about. <laughs> uh, that means uh, several things for me, um, and it's crucial. So first of all, um, and that's, for example, what I'm about to say, I think is one of her most important contributions, especially for the time. She aimed to study what she called science in the making or uh, science information. Or, and this is really in contrast with traditionally traditional history of science based on results, on the results of science. Like we, we take what is gets published, for example, uh, polished, uh, present, presented in its best form, and then you do a history of that. That would be very traditional. And she thought that's not what's interesting about science, it's not what is interesting about epistemology. For her, what, what's, in, what's interesting is to see how new ideas come about how hypothesis, hypothesis gets formulated, how, um, and here I come to the laboratory, how new experiences and uh, uh, experiments uh, get set up and maybe uh, they go wrong uh, and what you learn to, to things going wrong and not giving results, for example, or what you learn by, from mistakes, but also by so you know, um, fortuitous uh, results. And what you do there, how you go about doing this beginning, let's say, of your research, uh, that's what uh, she thought was of real interest. And to do that, uh, the best thing would be for a chemist to, to follow people in a lab. Of course, I mean, ethnologists of science nowadays, they do that. They go to, to labs and they look at what scientists do. Now, this is a problem if you study the 17th and 18th centuries, though, because you don't have access to that. She always um, mentioned a dream of being a student of one of those alchemists or, or, or chemists or pharmacists and just um, be in the lab with them and see what uh, they will tell you to do. But this is one of the reasons. So to see really science in the beginning while it's done, not, not after the, the, the event. The second reason is something that she hints at several times 
Uh, that nowadays we call it passive knowledge after, of course, Polanyi and more recently Harry Collins. They wrote extensively about um, passive knowledge. What's this passive knowledge she wants to um, get at? So when you write a report of an experiment, uh, especially at the time, there would be something left out. Uh, some that cannot be put in the report. I mean, some of it, it's because the author doesn't want you to know because for some of our scholars were, for example, medics and pharmacists and, you know, they make their living out of um, selling the products. But that's not what tacit knowledge is about. Tacit knowledge is that knowledge that cannot be conveyed in words. In words. So uh, if you're in a lab, you will learn how to carry on experiments, how to judge things, how to move about and um, uh, manipulate mat uh, substances in a way that is never really expressed. Uh, and it cannot really put into words. Sometimes it's even unconscious. It goes without saying that you do X. Um, and this is sort of common sense, if you want to call it that way, of course, changed. I mean, uh, uh, a scientist now will have a different understanding of what is obvious to do or how, how to even dispose your body and handle things. And uh, these things will have been learned without um, putting things in words. So uh, that's why visiting a lab uh, would have been um, important. Of course, she couldn't do it, but she thought that by reading as much as you can, not just about uh, experiments, uh, reports of experiments, but to read about um, the culture of the time and this other description, everything around um, what she wanted to know, she could get glimpses of what they really did. And then I want also to give a third reason uh, why she thought it was important. And to give this third reason, I want just to refer to a chapter of a popular history of chemistry, which is quite a short one. And as I said, available in English. She chose to um, dedicate the first chapter of this work to a description of the 17th century laboratory chemis uh, chemis of chemistry. So all the tools and uh, reagents and stuff. Um, and she tells you something which may be very obvious, at least it was obvious to people then, not so obvious to us. She tells you, look, they use glass, flask and containers. Their glass often broke. Furnaces were very important because fire was their main tool. They were called the philosophers of fire. But they couldn't keep temperature at a, at a, constant, um, at a constant level, as would be obvious now. That was, that's almost impossible with fire. Uh, the substances they use, you can call it, but you know, you can say sulfur or, or gold or iron metals, especially metals, but with a minute, she will tell you, this substance it could, not, could not have been as pure as a chemist will have nowadays, which means that um, an experiment couldn't have been repeated exactly the same, and it wouldn't have been uh, across different labs. So all this, really for a shed, shed a light, sheds a light also to how um, they develop their theories, uh, how uh, chemistry developed, basically. Uh, you have to understand the material world as well. It can be only about ideas. 
because chemists and pharmacists and, and alchemists, they were, first of all, not only, but first of all, practical, if you, practical scholars, I mean, scholars who did things with, with matter. Okay, I mean, I've got a few questions there, but I mean, one interesting thing that you brought up in the start is in this uh, emphasis of Metzger's on that you, you can't just look at science as the successes and results of science because you're excluding you're excluding so much. So does she have much in the, the same vein as someone such as Conguiem? Does she have an understanding that failure and, you know, the failure of the experiment is itself a key part of understanding uh, science in general, and especially the history of science? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, she doesn't talk about error in the sort of extensive uh, way that Conguiem does. I mean, Conguiem, you know, because, uh, as you know, uh, the philosophy of error, but uh, because he really thematized that uh, very fully. She doesn't have uh, a sort of an issue on, on that, but she does, but she does. Um, she thinks that, you know, errors are also um, interesting. And actually, in a way, that's maybe we can look at it from the other side. What she really criticizes is the history of success only. So in a way, you know, uh, uh, the, I, I, see, I think I said it a moment ago when she mocks the triumphalist history of science, where it's triumph after triumph. Hmm. Science doesn't work like this. I mean, life doesn't work like mm-hmm. this. I mean, in general, you can't always uh, succeed um, one attempt after the other. So what she's interested in is not looking at the success. She, look, she wants to look at the process and take everything in. And uh, certainly the, success, the errors are very important. Although um, I think uh, what she does, which is more complex in a way, interested, interesting, even of you know, somebody like Hongiyang or Bashrad, because she's more of a historian, uh, she doesn't have this uh, neat history that people make errors, uh, make mistakes, and they learn from the mistakes at once. And is so good. She's got very interesting things to say uh, to answer the question: Why didn't the alchemists learn from their mistakes? So we thinking uh, talking about uh, many uh, very very admired scholars who, for a very long time, tried to turn iron, copper, other metals into into gold. They failed. They feel very regularly. I mean, some of them said that they succeeded, but you know, <laughs> so, some question marks. So she actually set out to answer this question how come they basically didn't learn from the errors? And she explained why. Uh, so I think she talks about errors, but she also sees that it's not such a simple, it, it, simple thing. It, I mean, I agree with Conway-Yan error is a fantastic epistemological uh, tool. But she would say, wait, uh, it doesn't, we don't always learn from our errors. It's more complicated than that. In that sense, are, you know, are the triumphs, are the results really for Metzger not to be actually understood in this progressive linearity, but always to be taken within some sort of context? Ah, this is a very complex historiographical question, basically. Um, and 
But that's interesting because if we want to put put her work in context, because we've done at the beginning, um, she's batting against, in a way, two approaches. On the one hand, I mentioned traditional history of science, uh, one success after the other, and uh, history is linear, and this progression is all very neat and tidy. On the other hand, what it was really uh, important happening at the time, well, of course, we mentioned Kongiyam, we mentioned Bachelard, uh, and we could mention Brunswick, and we could mention Query, although Query was they knew each other very well, was slightly more junior than her. And uh, we talk about historians and philosophers' science who, who, who tell you um, there is, as Bashar would say, there is a break. What success or error meant for an alchemist has nothing to do with science. Alchemy, alchemy and, and chemistry have nothing to do with each other. They actually, uh, chemistry, uh, now I'm, I'm channeling Bachelard. Uh, chemistry is um, uh, can only emerge going against all that alchemy has been. So that's too, what I do is a bit of caricature of the of both to make it a bit extreme, but that's basically true. And she's a bit in the middle of that. So on the one hand, she will tell you, well, there are continuities and discontinuities, but she refuses, I think, to establish them only by comparing two sets of theories or, or experiments as um, autonomous, like looking at an alchemic theory and on the one hand and 20th century chemistry on the, um, on the, on the other hand. It's not how you, for her, how you establish whether there is continuity or not. For her, you establish if there is a continuity um, in, in this history by looking at historical connections. Uh, historical connection, though, is not just a linearity of you know, accumulation. Historical connection for her is what we can doc document if um, Alita scholars comments and uh, or, or takes ideas from a previous one, then the connection is there. But it's not just about um, building on some old theories. It could be criticizing some old theories. It could be rejecting them. It could be even misunderstanding them. But still, you can see that part of things change, but they're part of the same effort. Somehow, there is a continuity there. But she was very critical of histories of science who created continuities when they weren't. Um, she's quite respectful of Duane, but she just very different from, from him. Uh, when, for example, uh, famously Duane thinks that, you know, you could find in Aristotle, for example, and modern physics uh, similarities. And so um, there is for him a continuity. Uh, you have to historically document these links because otherwise, by comparing, we we can, of course, find similarities wherever we want. So, uh, yes, so for our continuities is something historical, but certainly things do change, and it is true that uh, uh, an experiment is set up in different times for di with different aims in mind for her, 
to answer different questions. Some of the questions that early mother scholars had, and they were they just mad for us. I mean, nobody will even ask ever those questions. Um, um, you know, it's uh, um, uh, they are very strange, and and also um, the reasons exactly why these things are done are different. But it, that, that doesn't not mean for her though that even if the questions are different and the methods are different, it does not mean that this scholar didn't contribute anything to later science. Because if later scholars took some from them, uh, reinterpret some of the results in a different way, doesn't matter, but still, um, they've done something. For example, I mean, um, she thinks that people who collected beautiful stones for the cabinets of natural history, they contributed to later crystallography. Now, those were certainly not scientists, so people who like beautiful objects. But she says, nevertheless, some of the angular stones, as they call them, they're, they're in fact crystals, and they made observations. Uh, they, they actually discovered some properties, and they later scholars used those, um, those discoveries. So, there is some continuity there. James, I don't know if I went a bit far from your question, but I hope mm -hmm. I partly answered, but if I didn't, I'll press me on that. Yeah. No, not at all. I think it's a, it's a tough question because Metzger really is looking at things from uh, a perspective that we, we just don't uh, generally equate with science, right? I would, I guess I would... Uh, say that it seems i think our, uh, nowadays um, within cont the contemporary world we sort of understand science as something which is always innovating and progressing on a certain uh, sort of linear track uh, and heading towards something even if we don't really know what it is and i think metzger certainly sees it as something far more um cultural and expansive than that no this is very true of course i mean there are two at least two ways i think to understand the world science I think there is a tendency a bit among um, philosophers, not all of them, I'll, I'll qualify in a second, uh, philosophers to understand science as a collection of truths, basically. And that's why if you understand science that way, you don't really need very much history of science. And then there are, for example, historians and sociologists who will understand science as a human activity. And of course, as a human activity is always over time and a place, right? And, and made by, by people, groups, and, and classes of people. Now, this is a very, um, again, it's a bit of a caricature as a distinction, but um, if you recall a moment ago, I said this was the time where historical epistemology was really flourishing. And it was precisely the attempt to look philosophically at um, the history of science. So understanding science from an epistemological point of view. Um, so they will tell you um, science is the model of knowledge, but knowledge as a history. The way in which we find out about the world as a history and, and that cannot be changed. Even if we think now we have the truth, we will know, and we hope so actually, that in the future we will have new discoveries and new, um, 
new ways of, of looking at the, um, at the world. Uh, so um, in a way, she's very much part of that. But for example, one thing I always say, so I, I draw people in, people who are maybe more attuned to Anglophone philosophy of science, that she's one of the few scholars that Thomas Kuhn mentioned as inspiration to the structure of scientific revolutions because precisely because of the attention to history. So to understand that what it means to think scientifically changes from one time to another. So if you see as science, you understand as a human activity aimed at the truth, aimed at finding out what is true about the world, that's, that's for sure, not is different from other activities, right? Um, on the other hand, it's still something we do. And therefore we cannot do it, but in a specific culturally and historically specific, specific way, because that's who we are, human beings. Mm -hmm. So how, what sort of methodology does she use then to be able to, you know, find a, a coherent connection between these differing uh, epochs and cultures and different scientific understandings. What is there certain things which Metzger looks for, which you know do do connect history in this way? Well, uh, she uh, she's in a way what some people may find slightly disappointing in her history of chemistry work and and crystallography that she really encourages historians to be uh, as comprehensive as possible uh, when they study um, the past. So she would say, okay, you study an alchemist, for example. First of all, never studying a person, but as she says, she wanted to find out the average opinion of the time. So she wanted to understand what matter for people at the time, how they saw the world. Otherwise, you can't understand the text. So, and she's got very nice passages saying you should study everything from a period, you should study general history, history of literature, even history of theater, philosophy, um, uh, all um, industry, uh, everything. She doesn't really do it herself. She really focuses a lot on past texts, on reading um, her texts. Uh, although, as I said, she had an attention to objects, and that's Wonderful, but she was very much as was at the time reading text, and she took a lot of him. She emphasizes a lot the importance of understanding uh, some texts uh, properly, which of course meant a sort of philosophical work. Um, she, I should mention, she wrote also a book on scientific concepts, for example, concepts like analogy, like substance evolution, and she thinks this concept, something that uh, decades later, Ian Hacking would call organizing concepts. These are concepts that organize our data. So if we look at the world in terms of evolution, then we look at the world in a certain way. If we focus on substances, we look at the world in a certain other way. So in order to understand past texts and how past people thought, you have also to find out what the dominant concepts were. 
she uses, she discuss analogy a lot, has got different types. Uh, but for example, she would say uh, early modern research, much of it was dominated by analogy in the sense that all objects in the world were seen as a, in a, in a um, relationship of analogy. So unless you understand that, she tells you, if you have people like Oswald Crow, who tells you, well, you can find out about the, the color of the stars if you look at the color of flowers. Or he will tell you, well, there are so many bones in a human being as there are woods, uh, types of wood uh, in the world. That's, that's either you decide this person was not sane, <laughs> okay, you discard everything, or you try to understand what the worldview was. Uh, if the worldview was that everything is in a relationship or analogy, then it starts making sense. That's, that's the way um, they look at the world. So there is a lot of, uh, in a way, studying what at the time was called the mentality of people. There is, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, there, is, there must be an awareness of the material world they were in. There is, um, try to be comprehensive, understanding the culture of the time. And then uh, to create the links, as I said, you really have to look who they, not just cite, but whose ideas they use, whose ideas they react to. Um, uh, she also does very um, um, nice work when she looks also as untidy, this history of connection is, when, for example, uh, they tell you um, there are experimental practices that this survives theory change. So there is a link in an experimental practice that is lost in the theory. For example, uh, a certain point, for, let's say Cartesian, Cartesian chemists. For Cartesian chemists, uh, matter, uh, quantity of matter means extension. So you should measure things, right? Uh, the extension of things, but they, they kept using a balance. Uh, so the weight rather than the extension, because that's what they did, what they did in, in, in the lab. And they didn't think they should change that. So there is a continuity there in the practice of things rather than the theory of things. So you try to, to see how um, things were connected uh, that way. And it may be also outside the discipline, by the way, in her period, there isn't a discipline called chemistry. She looks at, um, you know, very pharmacists, medics, alchemists, as, as I mentioned earlier. So you have to look at these real links uh, that there are, but uh, you can't decide that science, uh, by definition, has got laws that will make it progress. Um, such things she didn't believe in um, and on this sort of inevitable advancement uh, of scientific thought. Of course, some people did believe uh, that uh, at the time, especially because, I mean, Kant was still a very important figure for many people. And um, uh, the laws of history was something that some people believed in, but not her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I sort of always 
if I can take an opportunity to bring in Sarah because he actually does seem relevant here. He talked about this folding of the napkin where um, different points in time meet and perhaps, you know, what is happening within one scientific uh, understanding in one time. When these two points on a napkin meet, really what we're seeing uh, is the same thing but from a different perspective. So in terms of this um, search for for truth, which is really what science is about, would Metzger see perhaps two different scientific contexts, two different perspectives, really working with the same truth, but attending to it from a different angle. And in that sense, there is, uh, you know, even though she didn't agree with progression, there is almost like a non-linear progression just happening throughout time, but it's not uh, as we usually perceive it, that, that, that people throughout time are dealing with the same truth, but from a, but from a different structure. She doesn't says explicitly what she thinks, but on this particular, what, what is out there, I think, yeah, she thought, she, for example, she thought, I'm sure, she thought that current science was obviously much better than alchemy. She, she didn't for a moment suggest that, that that was a good research program to try, for example, to turn iron, in, iron into gold. And actually, I think she, criticize a certain type of progression that is all in the mind of the philosophers who reconstructs it, that is not the real thing. But I think she does believe in fact in some progression, precisely when she said that she can show the links, that this, uh, this for example, collateral stones or, or some archives dismissed by many like Bachelard as not belonging to the history of science, she would say, but no, they, they did they did contribute. And they contribute to what? To later science. So she thought they, they were useful in some later understanding. So in a way, if you look at that way, there is some progression, right? Because the later, they are more successful later on. Undoubtedly, mm-hmm. uh, in what they want to do. I mean, the alchemist doesn't mean to turn uh, doesn't sorry manage to turn uh, iron into gold. A later chemist manages much better to do what they want to do. So uh, there is uh, there is more success if you want. Although I don't think she wanted to quantify that or um, have a theory about that. But it's almost it goes without saying for her that yes, we do accept that um, current science is better, and she actually want to show how these people thought very. Uh, thought very differently and there are different aims, but nevertheless contributed, because you shouldn't look at the point of view of the past, that should be in the past. From the, our point of view of the present, we should see that we can borrow and refer and use things from the past, in that, and we have done so in different steps. So in that sense, if you look at from the point of view of the present, there has been, um, use con- the only thing I wouldn't there is progression there is no linearity it's not linear actually a lot of your work it shows how messy things were uh, in her time especially uh, early modern period even from a synchronic, syn- synchronic point of view because nowadays there is a lot more unity in uh, I mean it's more uh, science has become global 
right, in many ways. Not that if you study in a country, you can go work in another country, you won't find a complete different, um, complete different setup. Although some people have written their passive knowledge in different labs is a bit different. So one may have a bit of a, of a problem, but, but textbook will be the same, right? In her time is totally, uh, there is not even a discipline you can call chemistry uh, that everybody thinks they belong to. Uh, and there are different approaches, different philosophies. For example, she's got examples that she thinks a Cartesian chemist might not understand Davidson's philosophy of pyrotechnic of the same period because Davidson has the, the, the assumption that the things we perceive are copies of the real thing or copies of copies, a sort of um, new platonic assumptions. And if you don't show that assumptions, you really don't understand what you're talking about. So it's very fragmented and very messy. But even later on, she thinks, for example, this progression that if there is, is not in one triumph after triumph or even era after era. It's messy. There are different research projects. These get picked up for different reasons, at different moments, for different purposes. So there's a lot of complexity um, if you really look at what went on. That does not mean that we can do better and better, although, of course, you could, could ask me what, what does better mean in this case. But um, I, think, uh, I think, yes, I think partly she did believe at least that, yes, there is a better understanding uh, of the world, although it's always... It's like the napkin, though. It's always a diff it's, uh, not the same point of view. Um, also not the same aspirations, if you want, the same questions. I don't know if I convey the complexity, but not the... Uh, so it, it, this is actually quite interesting because, again, she has got a much more complex view, as she was, as I say, between two uh, positions, even uh, uh, in her own... Day-to-day uh, -day activities, they were split. Sorry, a bit of biography, but it was split bef between the Sorbonne and the philosophers, and um, the Centre Synthes. Uh, the Synthes was, of course, um, a very important but uh, independent research centre. In one place, she found it really a bit a positivistic history of science. Uh, sci uh, history as a science. Uh, so you look at documents and you have the truth of it, and you should only look at data and, and things like that. And, and progress right there was a good thing, but the philosopher will actually, like Bachelard, etc., they will look at discontinuities, at opposing, at discarding the past from the history of science, uh, saying that what oh, she studied was not science. She gets a bit picked at times when she has her views, when she realizes even Bashbaker teacher will uh, um, eliminate from science much of what she writes about. And she thinks, no, that's science as well, just a different type of it. Mm -hmm. So did she ever comment on why it was that, perhaps it wasn't so much in 
in her day and, and perhaps I'm looking in the wrong places nowadays, but did she ever comment on why it was that science had increasingly become more culturally culturally detached and sort of uh, framed itself almost as an island, which doesn't need uh, all these other contexts? She doesn't comment directly on, on the point, but I think we can find out a bit what she thought of. Okay, on the one hand, from all I've said so far, I think it's clear enough for her. Uh, science is very much a human activity, uh, comes out of our conceptual framework, which may change, although there is never incommensurability for her. We can, it's difficult, but we can understand past um, scholars because we share um, uh, at the bottom, we share the same human mind, although this human mind can take very, uh, different um, orientations. Um, so, yes, it's very culturally situated. Uh, this is um, uh, for sure. I forgot for a moment your question. Ah, yes, of science being detached. So science is not uh, detached, sorry. That goes without saying. Why it became that way, as I say, she didn't answer directly. She didn't like it, though, uh, because, for example, she was also the person who said that even modern science is not as some philosopher wanted from the latter and on, and Ashlaub especially, is not pure rationality either. Um, emotions also go, get into science here, yeah, science, and they can, can, couldn't be otherwise. And she thought there was getting the letter of history as well, and passions and habits. Habits were important to her as well. I mean, uh, chemists and habits. So all this is always true in any time. So if it's true in any time, it, uh, science cannot be outside. Uh, all these contingencies, uh, contingencies either. What she wrote about, I guess, which may be connected to what uh, you said, in the last years of her life, when, you know, very difficult years of her life, when she was in Lyon trying to escape the Nazis, but not succeeding, because um, they did capture her and deported in Auschwitz when she died, uh, she was writing a book. And now we have only a short version. It was a, it's like an extended plan of the book. It was against, in a way, scientism and against um, pure determinism. So uh, she criticized biology and sociology of her time when they wanted to say that there are laws that we can discover and we don't have a human being. She felt they wanted to deny human beings the freedom of uh, constructing things differently, of doing things uh, in a different way, and therefore also to do science in a different way. I will add, she doesn't say openly, but I think is what, uh, what, what, what she means. Um, so she was very much, uh, she always says, like the thought in human beings is created by the culture, but it's also created. We can also invent new things. Um, so I think she would have seen science as totally detached from culture and time as another culture <laughs> condition. Mm -hmm. Like our culture wants science to be like that, mm -hmm. right? To be to be something that is not affected. And in fact, I find it even the other way around a bit strange when people get scandalized that science is affected by 
cultural, economical, social constraints. How could be could it be otherwise though? Um, you know, we have of course to keep an eye on how it does done, absolutely, but it's very hard to do it. Uh, and we all, whatever we do, but by the way, we all work in institutions or, or, or according to certain parameters, otherwise you wouldn't have any, any exchange with anyone. So yes, uh, things have to be written in a certain way if you want to be accepted, uh, but not because one does it because one wants to be accepted, but because it's the way most of us we think is the way of doing things. So, but how can not be cultural since it was different? Yeah, it's a very. I mean, it's sort of. I guess the the deep irony that it's um, a cultural effect that we try. Uh, a, you know, as you say, avoid the the idea that science is affected by culture, um, and it probably will take some time to to get rid of that as well. Um, is there a, just just you know over what we've spoken about so far is there anything uh, key with respect to Metzger's philosophy that uh, or her history of science her philosophy of science that you you would like to to add in actually something expanding slightly to um, about what I was saying earlier about when she talks about uh, uh, science in the making and uh, she also had this distinction uh, which is related to that she thinks there is a moment where we have, like Bruskai thinking, there is, she calls, a spontaneous thought or the expansive thought is the moment in which hypothesis gets um, um, uh, formulated, new ideas emerge, and we, she says, thoughts run in all directions, and we think of connections. Um, and of course, that's uh, very important, but then there is the reflective thought thought, we have to reflect on it, and we have to then check the consistency of what we say, the coherence of what we say. Now, this is similar to uh, what philosophers will know as context of discovery a context of justification. But I would like just to, to show how original she was uh, for the time, two things. First of all, she doesn't think that there could be a clear line between the two. She thought that if we, if thoughts became more reflective and logical, perfectly logical, uh, science would just get at a standstill. We would have new inputs, even for the science we already have. We, we won't advance that way. So there is always a um, mix up between the two. But also, for example, a very famous contemporary was Karl Popper, of course. And Karl Popper uh, famously said that the context of discovery is not a matter for philosophy. Is a matter for maybe psychologists, but not philosophers. Philosophers, philosophers should only analyze the context of justification, which is, of course, the polished and finished results of science. I was mentioning a moment ago. Uh, so, in a way, she says something um, something that will be picked up later on, uh, you know, in the maybe sixties and seventies or later of the, the last century, but that, for example, people like Papa wouldn't accept. Uh, and I think it's a pity that um, philosophers read, of course, Popper rightly, very much, but they didn't read Metzger. <laughs> no. Okay, so maybe at the same level, but in a way, uh, you know, Gerald Fulton, for example, um, talks about nas nascent uh, phase of thought, which is very similar to um, um, 
to what Metzger says, and, and Houlton did like her work. But I mean, this is just one small example of many ideas uh, that uh, she has that, of course, they can be taken exactly as they were. They were things were written in the 1930s and 40s, and she had very pressing um, um, question to answer. Not just question, for example, if you read, if you read, uh, um, especially um, her aces, her aces generally are books she gave. Uh, so they're written also in a particular style, it's really spoken, it sounds like. Uh, but often at the Santa centers where she had to battle with people who really disagreed with anything that was not checking of dates and data and documents. And um, so um, she had polemical targets. So things are written in a certain way. We have to take that away. We have to understand also um, all that. So you can just think, take what she says um, as it is. But I think it, she can be still an inspiration for us, at least to think about a lot of the themes she discusses. So, so she's almost, does she sort of accept that she's almost a, uh, you know, within her own context, within her own time as well? She's sorry, I did, I did does, understand what does, you said. Does, does she sort of, you know, as you say, she had polemical targets and these 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 also have to be taken within the context of um, her time. Does she sort of accept that she's also a sort of a, you know, a philosopher within her own context? Yes, I mean, she she um, she did. Uh, but of course, she, she was in a very difficult position. So first of all, because her ideas, as I said, were... They were her own, and I must say, I think they the wiser than some of her contemporaries uh, in, uh, for example, historiographical terms. Um, they're more complex uh, also sometimes, uh, but uh, of course she didn't fall neatly in any camp. She admired a lot of philosophers. Of course, she was um, close to... Banshvig and Alexandre Coiré, um, but um, she really didn't subscribe, she didn't agree with either them completely or with a more positivistic approach. So she, but she strongly defended that position, absolutely. Of course, it, you can see sometimes she's a bit too Matisse, <laughs> but I understand why she's a bit too, uh, not polemical, um, <laughs> even more than that, uh, she, you can hear, especially in this essay that there were seminars, that they were, uh, she was slightly irritated by uh, previous conversation. You must understand that to be uh, a woman in France in the interval period thereabouts, uh, and you want to be a scholar is very hard. Um, she could never get a sort of stable job. Very few women did. Uh, I think six in the whole of France at the time. Uh, two in Paris. Uh, one was Marie Curie. I mean, and after <laughs> she inherited, she inherited yeah her husband's chair because she didn't even didn't 
even her own chair, although she had the Nobel Prize, I'm about to win another one. Um, and so it was extremely difficult. Uh, she was often uh, treated um, in a patron very patronizing way. Uh, she was often asked to do a lot of <laughs> to work on the catalog and to uh, compile indexes for her male, the books of her male colleagues. Um, so I think there is also a human part of it, but she was very confident in what she thought. Uh, she defended what she thought. Um, she had many links with many people. And also she was, uh, in first of all, research chemistry, she was recognized though. I mean, you see, for example, Bachelard or Kangiem, uh, they, they um, cite her as an authority in early modern history of chemistry, she's an authority. And people do recognize that at the time too. But it's always a very complex uh, situation there, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think it's for these these reasons that she has been sort of, you know, it, it's surprising that she's been so overlooked considering that she is uh, referenced in um, the structure of scientific revolutions, which, you know, for a long time was, uh, you know, the, the most well-known sort of science, one of the most well-known texts, uh, you know, publicly, so to speak. You're absolutely right. Actually, there's a little anecdote here. Um, a few months ago, um, I mentioned this in a seminar. I was giving a seminar, I don't even remember where now. Um, and somebody said, but no, she's not mentioned because they look at the um, index of the structure of scientific revolution. I did not realize that whoever did the index did not put her name in the index. Of course, she's there on page one or something. And by the way, um, not only in the structure of scientific revolution, Kuhn writes honor in, if you go to the central tension, she's queer and her, uh, and, uh, and she are um, the, um, uh, what, what he calls the new historiography of science, the new internal historiography of science. And uh, so um, Kuhn writes pages on her. Nobody noticed that. And people thought it was not um, worth um, uh, putting a name in the index. So a lot of people wouldn't, people who go to the index wouldn't have noticed her name. So uh, yes, no, the fact that she was a woman, of course, uh, of course, I'm, I'm pro created a lot of problems in her time. And she was very aware of that. We have letters and uh, the good things about that archive at Harvard. That uh, archive at Harvard, but a lot of the letters have been published by Gad Freudenthal again. She has she, got almost sociological analysis of, of all the setup, including while her education had been, she, she didn't have um, the type of education that normally leads to an academic job is like a, a, a different tier, uh, basically the one without Latin and Greek. And um, and she had an analysis of why that her father thought it was better for a woman to have a dowry rather than an education. And so she understand a lot of, um, of that, which by the way, if I can say that, because I found it incredibly interesting, that in a letter she writes that uh, a father thought was better for his daughters to have dowries who would then be able to marry 
a man of intellectual and moral worth, but not of means. So not a rich man, and she did that. Actually, she married an academic. And what she analyzes there has been in decades later, sociologists analyzed that, and that was the pattern of marriage that happened among French Jews of the time. And a bit before, because Durkheim did the same, and Levi Brule was her uncle. So it was normal for, um, it was the first generation of, first or second generation of, of Jewish people getting into academia. So those promising young men will often marry wealthy women. So that's, she understand how the world worked at the time. And sometimes I don't know if that contributes to her death, because of course, some, if you had a job and you were well known as an academic, you might have had a chance to have a visa for the United States, as for example, Alexandre Corey did, and she didn't. But more to the point, I think the bias continues to our days. If you if you read excellent work on her, uh, you know articles on her by Karen scholars, you will see most of them immediately uh, write that she was a modest pupil. It was Meyerson's protege. She was uh, uh, somebody's student. She was influenced by somebody. She's always influenced. Not that she wasn't, but we don't do the same with men, right? With men scholar. You can say, yes, it was somebody's pupil, but then you will say also uh, that this person was somebody's teacher, if you know what I mean. Or any, in any case, you discuss the, the work directly. And uh, I think so there is always, sadly, I think unconsciously, they always project this idea to the reader that this is not a very important scholar. scholar. It's somebody, you know, that maybe does some okay work by derivative of somebody else's. Well, actually, in this case, it really wasn't because it's not um, uh, a position are not um, easily overlapped, you know, easily uh, put in a in a um, in a little box, even at the time. For example, it's often said that she's uh, basically very close to Meyerson, but she had a lot of problem with that actually because he wanted that to be to, be, to have uh, Emil Meyerson, by the way. I don't know if people know. Uh, is another philosopher of chemistry. Um, and uh, the, the position are rather different. Doesn't mean that there was dialogue, uh, but uh, people go on saying that because you have to say that. Um, so it, um, it goes on. Uh, I wasn't, um, for example, <laughs> very happy to see in a very good book. There was a biography of her, just long, one paragraph, one paragraph long. So all the most important things. And Metzger is presented as Alexandre Query's student. Now, first of all, I have the roughly contemporaries, but that's not the point. She did attend his lectures, very true, uh, at the Col Pratique. Uh, but I mean, when she attended his lecture, uh, she had she had a doctor for a long time, but she had published five books. Uh, he had just basically made his, his transition to history of science. He was writing his first book in history of science. She introduced him to the Sanders Synthes and some history of science circles in Paris, but she becomes 
you know, in few lines, described as a student because, of course, she's much better, far better known than she is. But I think that's, uh, yeah, I think bias is one of the reasons, certainly, that why she's um, not better known. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's, they're all sort of the um, expected reasons, I guess, that uh, are, come almost as no surprise from history. Um, but where would where would you have? I mean, this might be a tricky question. I mean, obviously, your book is probably is the best place for uh, the <laughs> anglophone reader to to begin with Metzger now, and perhaps you know, really, really the only place so, um, so far. But as I said, there are articles. But if you want to read them directly in English, the papers, yes, I think you would like to do that. Um, you can read. Yeah, I think for philosophers, especially, I understand this um, podcast is more uh, aimed at philosophers or, or people who like philosophy. Is that correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's uh, so maybe yes. Her papers are more interesting than her. Um, histories uh, of chemistry and crystallography. Of course, her ideas are there in the histories. Uh, you, you have to extract her ideas from there. But of course, there's a lot of work to extract them from there. So if you don't have already an interest in history of chemistry, maybe it's a bit heavy <laughs> going to try to extract the ideas from there. But the purpose, she tells you more directly. And in English, yes, I'm afraid that that's the place or, or this new um, translation coming out in Hoppers. Um, what else? The popular sort of chemistry um, is translating into English. Um, I don't know if that is where a philosopher will go, but if you maybe you one can pick up things from there as well. But you know, hopefully, uh, people will think of translating more. But the papers at the moment, yes, are. Four as an appendix of my book and one in the journal Hoppers uh, uh, this year. And um, it would be nice maybe also uh, to translate other uh, papers, which though in French are in a volume, edited again by Gad Freudenthal, uh, La méthode philosophique. Um, yeah, La méthode philosophique. Uh, so the philosophical method, the title is from one of the uh, papers. And there you have not only these papers I'm talking about, uh, which are mainly seminars she gave, but you also have uh, book reviews. And it's quite interesting because she uh, reviews Bachelard, Mayerson, Duane, all sorts of important philosophers, and many other papers. So uh, that's also uh, an interesting volume, but it, it's in French. And I think they have to say they into Italian. But I guess for English speakers, that doesn't make it better. Maybe it makes it worse. <laughs> and, uh, but maybe somebody listening uh, would like to translate the whole book into English. Uh, that, would be, that would be good. Yeah, I mean, unless there's anything uh, you, you'd like to add, um, I believe we can find your book either via religious site or via Amazon. Um, and probably a few other bookstores, but it's just called uh, Elon Metzger, historian and historiographer of the sciences. Um, yeah, is there, is there anything you'd like to add? No, nothing. And uh, but thank you for this opportunity. I always love to talk about Metzger, so it was nice to chat about her. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.